Romans chapter 9. And we're right on schedule to get through this by the end of May. Halfway through. When you get to the end of chapter 8, if you were to continue somewhat logically in terms of just what proceeds next, you might want to skip over to chapter 12. Because Paul's thought in chapter 8 continues in chapter 12. In chapter 8, he talks about, I am convinced that neither death nor life or angels, none of this can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then chapter 12 begins, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul, and Paul is sometimes want to do this, as most preachers do. He gets a little bit off subject. Not that this wasn't intentional, but he wants to deal with an issue right here. He wants to talk about the salvation of Israel. The church at Rome, even in the mid-50s, when this is written, was primarily Gentile. He wants to clarify the relationship and the role of the Israelites, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, in God's economy of salvation. They're all saved just like we are, or anyone is, through faith. And he talks about that in these three chapters at some degree of length. And so he begins in chapter 9 this way. Uh, He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, for I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me. In the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and an unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who were Israelites, to whom belonged the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. So he begins saying... Uh, I, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. You know, and now it's not that anyone's accusing him of lying, but what he wants to get across is emphatically what he's saying. We all have ways of being emphatic. We all have ways of doing things to drive home a point. I do it in certain ways. Cultures do it in certain ways. So Paul is saying this. I am sharing what is absolutely true and what follows. I'm not lying. Not that anyone accuse him of that, but he says, I just want you to know. And it's not like I was lying earlier. You know, have you ever had a conversation with someone and you said, listen, I'm just being honest right now. It's not that you weren't honest before. It's just that you're being emphatic of the seriousness of what you're saying or the importance of what you're saying. So what you have here then is driving home a point of emphasis when he talks about the people of Israel. He says, I have, or my conscience testifies to me in the Holy Spirit that I have sorrow and grief in my heart, it is great and unceasing. Paul is burdened for the people of Israel. Now, here is the thing. Paul himself has said that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was basically the apostle to the Jews. Interesting enough, Peter was the first of all the apostles to go into the home of a Gentile. In fact, Peter began, as we see in Acts, the ministry to the Gentiles. Paul did not begin that. All of the apostles of Jesus, of the of 11 remaining, were involved, well, all but most of them, in the ministry of the Gentiles. Peter tended to focus on the Jews. Whenever Paul went somewhere, the first thing he would do was go to the synagogue to begin. He started with the Jews. He would debate with the Jews. Early in his ministries, it was the Jews who persecuted him, who he battled with. But fundamentally, Paul's ministry moved towards Gentiles. Most of the work Paul saw, most of the, 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 the benefit or most of the reaping of what he sowed was with Gentile converts. 
And we see that in a lot of his teaching in the books that he writes is to help Gentile Christians get where they need to be in the faith. And oftentimes he is combating uh, Jewish Christians or even Jews who aren't Christians. So he says, I have this sorrow in my heart, and I wish that there were, I could be accursed. In other words, I wish I, could be, I would be separated from Christ. He'll say this again uh, throughout these three chapters. For the sake of my brother and my kin as the Israelites. In other words, he is almost saying, I would give up my salvation if all of them could be saved. Now that is a figure of speech. I don't know uh, we would want to hold Paul to that per se. But you, you, what he's trying to drive home is how serious this is to him. How important it is that the people of Israel be saved. And as you go through these next three chapters, and we will over the next few weeks, you'll see that there is a place in God's economy where the Jewish people will, at some point, become more involved in coming back to the gospel. That there will, Paul tells us, be a sense of more and more Jews at some point coming. By the way, let me say now, there are, there are numerous groups throughout our country, throughout the world, who are what we call fulfilled Jews, Jewish believers, Messianic Jews, Jewish Christians, some of you may know them. There is a strong movement uh, among them to evangelize other Jews. In fact, I would say Jews who are Christians, people who are Jewish by ethnicity, who are Christians, are far more effective in helping other Jews come to faith than you and I ever will be. I don't, I, if my Jewish friends want to talk to me, I'll talk to them, I'll pray for them. But I, I have basically in my life had zero success with them. But I know that a lot of Jewish believers are very successful. They, it, it's like this, I do really well with guys like me, because I know guys like me, right? So, you know, you're, you're, you're something like me. I do well with you because you're like me. And it, it makes sense that we, we do better with people we have some connection to. Uh, that's why so much when missionaries go across like Joe did, and he was in Argentina, it was so important for him to learn not just the language but the culture, to be like them. And it was still difficult. So he says this. They are Israelites. It says they belong as adopted sons, you know, so uh, to whom belongs the adoption of sons. So what he's saying is God had adopted them back through Abraham, brought them in. The glory and the covenants all belong to them. The giving of the law, the temple services and promises all belong to them. But here's what he said before that in verse 3, which you want to separate. He is their kinsman, though, according to the flesh. All of that belongs to them, but according to the flesh. In other words, they are... The Jewish, they are God's people from the Old Testament in a fleshly sense. In a minute, he's going to talk about, and throughout these next few chapters, that the true Israelites are those who are the people of Israel through spirit. And Christ himself talks about that. They talk about the fathers, and from whom the Christ came according to the flesh. Christ came out of the Jewish people. And so, you know, that, that is his appeal. That these, the, Jesus is Jewish. He came from the Jews. The Jews were God's chosen people. There's a special place, a special desire for him that makes sense. But he has to remind us that they are God's people. They are the Israelites in the fleshly, earthly sense. Because then he goes on in verse 8. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel. And here is the key. Jesus said that the children of Abraham are those who follow him. The true sons of Abraham, the true people of God, are the believers in Christ. So we've got to understand this. 
Because there's teachings go on out there that somehow make this distinction that, you know, Jews can still somehow come to God through keeping the law and that by being Jewish, all this will help, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Bible is fundamentally clear from Jesus Christ to the apostles, especially Paul. The only way you will be saved from your sins is if you commit your life to Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Period. In the story, it's heresy, false teaching to think there is. Because you're calling Jesus and Paul liars. That's that simple. I don't care how you slice it or dice it. I don't care if you look at the Greek, the Hebrew, Polish, Czechoslovakia, Cantonese. It doesn't matter. It says what it says. So Paul says, the true children of Israel, the true children of Israel are those who have Christ. Now look what he says. Verse 7. Nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. Now here's what he's going to do. He's going to give you two examples of how this works. In verse 7 and 8, he's going to talk about the two sons of Israel, Isaac and Ishmael. Notice what he says. They're not all children of Abraham because of Abraham's descendants. Notice what he said. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as, as of, uh, descendants. For this is what the word of promise said. At the time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Now you go back to Abraham. God had made a promise to Abraham. The world will be blessed through you. The whole world. He also said, there will be a great nation come from you. Now, because he and Sarah didn't have a child, they got to jump the gun and they went to Hagar and he got Hagar pregnant and he had a son, Ishmael. He is the oldest of Abraham's sons. And God said, it is not through Ishmael that I will bless. It is through the child of Sarah, that is Isaac. God makes the determination through whom he blesses. So here he says, the true children of, of Abraham, back in the Old Testament, the true children of Abraham were the descendants of Isaac, not Ishmael. Now, he goes on and talks about Rebekah. Then you know, Isaac gets married, Rebekah. Well, this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. Then in verse 10, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived, she had twins uh, by one man, the father Isaac. Okay, so Isaac is going to have, have a descendant coming through Isaac. He's got twins. Normally in that day and age, like our day and age, you know, the oldest was the first one born. You know, and, and back then, in terms of inheritance, didn't matter if you were twins. Whoever came out first... They were the number one son. So they got the inheritance. They got the double blessing. They got everything. That's how man did it. God says this. And by the way, it was deserved or earned. In other words, the firstborn son deserved. It was his right to have all this. Not according to God. For though the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or bad, so that God's promise according to his choice would stand, and because of, of the works, but because of him who calls, it was said, the older will serve the younger. It is written, Jacob I love, but Esau hated. So here's what he said. Before they were ever born, he said, the younger one will be the one through whom I bless. That is Jacob, not the older, not Esau. So God, before birth, he determined who the blessing for Abraham would go through. He gets to make that call. It's not the oldest. So you have two oldest sons, Ishmael, Esau. They didn't get nothing. Now, 
When he says the older will serve the younger, it's not that Esau specifically served Jacob, because we don't actually see Esau serving Jacob. The, the Edomites, when they serve the people of Israel, it is about the priority of who gets the blessing. And he says, Jacob, I love Esau. I hate it. It's not that he literally hated Jacob, uh, Esau, but it's, it's one of those things that happen in, in uh, Scripture about comparison. Sometimes you hear Jesus saying, you must hate your mother and father. In other words, your love for me must be so great that whatever love you have for your mother and father almost looks like hatred. It's just a figure of speech. Here's what he's saying is, I have chosen Jacob. So he, notice him. God determines who the blessing goes through. Ishmael did not get the blessing. Esau did not get the blessing. Isaac and Jacob. That happened in Israel's own history. So that... When God says the true descendants of Abraham and the true descendants of Israel. When he says, when Jesus says there are those who believe in me, as Paul says, as he will throughout these next three chapters, not just necessarily today, that they are the followers of Christ, that is God's prerogative to make that decision. Not ours. And we need to understand that the true Children of Israel is the church. Whoever is in the church, not just Gentiles, will see the weeks go by. Paul's going to say, hey, Gentiles, don't get cocky and arrogant. God brought you in. <laughs> he can bring you back out. <laughs> he brought you in. He'll bring Israel in. He'll bring in who he chooses. He decides who comes in, so don't get cocky and arrogant. But understand, for right now, as he's writing this, most of the Christian movement is towards the Gentiles. All right, so what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? In other words, is God just? That's the question. I, I preached about this uh, quite a bit in the fall, and we're going to see in just a minute about Pharaoh. But he says, is, is God, is no, does God like justice? May it never be. That's emphatic in the, in the Greek. By no means. It's not possible that God is not just. The attributes of God are unchangeable. Okay? We say immutability, but it's just easier for us to say unchangeable. If you want to write a theological textbook, you can use fancy terms. I don't know why they do that. <laughs> they say God's attributes never change. That makes more sense to me. So God is always holy. He is always just. He is always loving. He is always forgiving. He is always God. Period. Now, the justice of God, and in Sunday I'm preaching... Uh, on righteousness and justice, which are basically the same thing. To understand God's justice is to understand that God does always what is right in conformity to his holiness. God is always holy. And then God deals with all things in conformity to his holiness, which means he is always just. Whatever decision God makes is a decision that is just, even when God extends mercy to those who don't deserve mercy. In God's way of doing things according to his holiness, he is just to do that. It fits with the holiness of God. So if God doesn't forgive, it fits. And if God chooses to forgive us in Christ, which he has done, it fits. So we can't begin any argument with questioning the justice of God. This happens all the time. I talked about this past Sunday when I was talking 
What was that message on? Oh, the God who was cruel. You know, I forget my messages, don't you? You know, when Monday comes, I almost always forget my previous message. I forget the outline. I forget what I said. I know it was really brilliant, but I just don't remember what it was. That's good. I know that. I just don't remember it. And so, uh, so I preached on the God who was cruel. Okay. What point? What passage was that from? Huh? Joshua, thank you, because I couldn't remember what's up. So we were talking about Jericho, right? I tell you, my mind just, my mind's like some of yours. It's gone, right? But only, you know, some of yours are, is gone like at 2 o'clock. Mine waits till 5 or 6. But so, and, and we talked about the fact that was God, you know, we look at God and question the justice of God, the love of God, uh, the goodness of God because of how God does. And one of the things that we said, God always provides a way. And, but remember, I say, and I say this all the time, we who are sinful really can't be calling into question what God does. God created us. In fact, we're going to see next week, he talks about the potter and the clay. That song, you are the pot, I'm the potter, you are the potter, I'm the clay, comes from this part in part, uh, here in part. But it, it's the idea that the one who creates sets the rules. It just works that way. And so what I'm saying is, we need to understand if we begin by questioning the justice of God, we're going to go down a wrong path. But we do need to understand. So he gives this unbelievable illustration. This is what God said to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God makes that choice. He, we don't choose that. We, we've always got to remember, none of us deserves mercy. None of us deserves compassion. Go back to Rahab Sunday. She didn't deserve anything. Everybody in Jericho deserved to die because they were godless, cruel, heartless pagans. She just came to faith. All of them could have done that. She's the one. The rest of them didn't. So God had mercy on Rahab and her family. Now, there's no evidence. Remember, the, the spy said anyone that comes into the house with the cord on it, they'll be safe. Didn't mean they were believers. But God said this. I have determined that all who go into the house will be safe. Same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot left. His wife left. His daughters left. Anyone that went with Lot would be safe. His wife went back. That doesn't mean his daughters were, were righteous and, and God-fearing. It doesn't mean that at all. But God said, I will have mercy on those who walk out of Sodom with Lot. He gets to make the call. Now, here's the thing. God wants to make sure we understand he is the one. And Paul wants to make sure we understand it is God who determines who gets mercy and who gets compassion. If we determine it, then we've earned it. We can't earn it. So what does he say then? Verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy, and then he goes to the illustration that is so difficult for many people. The one we dealt with back in the fall, and I'm going to deal with it again, he goes to Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. He has mercy on whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. So a lot of people say, Pharaoh never had a chance. Go back to the Old Testament. Some of you may remember, and I remember this part. <laughs> when I talked about Pharaoh, 
I told you that Pharaoh, and there were two of them, at least two in the Old Testament Exodus story, they believed they were gods. First of all, Pharaohs believed they were gods. There were lots of gods. They believed they were gods. And as gods and deity, they believed they were to be worshipped and obeyed, not because they were the king, that's one type of obedience, but because they were God. So right there, you've got a huge problem. Pharaoh has already put himself up on a level and rebelled against God. Then on top of that, we see the cruelty of both Pharaohs in this exodus. We see the cruelty of the Pharaoh who wanted to slaughter the baby boys of, of Israel. And then during the exodus, we see the cruelty of the Pharaoh who refused, refused to admit he was wrong and allowed his people to be devastated. Fourteen times in the book of he, of, of Exodus, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. I say 14. It, it depends on your version and how some of the Hebrew is hard to translate. So it's 14 to 50, somewhere in that range. 14, 16, right in there. But you get the picture. Half the time it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Half the time it says God hardened his heart. Now, originally it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So Pharaoh first hardened his heart. Even before Moses came to Pharaoh, his heart was hard because he thought himself God. I mean, put aside for a moment the worship of the one true God. We know that all the pagan gods are false gods. But even in those systems, even if you come to a system of mythology like the Greeks did, to consider yourself a god, even in mythology, was unbelievably arrogant. And in Greek mythology... Angered the gods. When you thought more highly of yourself than you should, it angered the pantheon of the gods. Go read some of the stories that you see in Greek mythology. So, here you have them, and when you compare the one true God, to elevate ourselves up to the one true God is a horrible blasphemy. So his heart was already evil and hard. So when he had the chance to repent, when Moses confronted him, even after some of the plagues. There were a couple of times it says, well, several times it says, he relented, he repented, he, he, he changed his mind, and he was going to let him go. And then he hardened his heart and said no. So after a while, God just hardened his heart. Why? Because God just gave him what he wanted. Part of his judgment, part of his punishment for not turning to God in repentance was for God to give him what he wanted. The price of a hardened heart. God gave him over to the lust of his flesh. You want to be God? You want to play God? Here it goes. You're going to get to see what it's like to be God. And you can't do it. And then God brought those plagues and showed him what it means to be God. That was his punishment for hardening his heart. So now... You come over to Romans. And what does it say? Paul says. God did this. This all happened so that his name and power could be proclaimed throughout the earth. Was it? Story of Jericho. What happened? Rahab the, pro the prostitute told the spies. We all know what the Lord your God did to Egypt, and we are terrified. And because of what happened, 
Rahab the harlot had faith. So you see the connection. God didn't force Pharaoh to harden his heart. It's already hard. He chose that path. He gave it over. So, God has mercy on whom he desires. He desired to have mercy on Rahab. But he hardened whom he desired. He decided to harden Pharaoh, who had already rebelled against him. Now, we're going to stop here because I don't have time to go through the rest of the chapter, the rest of the argument. I don't like cutting off in the middle of a paragraph. As we go through these next couple of chapters, he's going to relate that to Israel and the hardening of their heart and rejecting of Jesus and then God bringing them back and bringing them back. So, uh, I suppose Joe wants me to keep you all longer. I'm just not going to. Uh, but I'll let you ask questions for as long as it takes, and I'll be happy to answer them as best I can. Yes, sir. Sure, Judas had the same opportunity. Yeah, Judas was, was with Jesus for the better part of three years. There's not a person condemned to hell who had a better opportunity than Judas. Judas had opportunities no one else has but 11 other men. Twelve men had, the, had an opportunity that no one else has ever had. Judas was one of them, and he blew it. Now, I, I, there were reasons for him doing that, and I'm not as hard on Judas as others may be. It doesn't really matter what people think. There was a rationale to why Judas did what he did. Uh, I am one of those who tend to believe that he was hoping to force Jesus into declaring his Messiahship. But be that as it may, he had an opportunity and he let it get away. Yes, and Jesus, it was prophesied that would happen. And Jesus acknowledged that. It doesn't mean that he was not uh, accountable for that. And remember this, Judas, even afterwards, could have repented. Even after Judas betrayed Jesus, he knew he did wrong. That's why he killed himself. He, he, he had remorse. This, this, this is the important thing about Judas. Judas felt sorrow. Judas had remorse. He regretted everything he did. He took the 30 coins of silver and he threw it back. And there's a point that he almost repented. As close, put it this way. You know, I talk about the feet on the, on the cross having the worst faith ever. He barely got into heaven. Judas barely didn't. I mean, the, the, you could, between their faith or where they were in life, you could take a piece of paper and put it between them and, se- and that barely separate them. But between that piece of paper was the point of salvation was the point of trusting Christ. He didn't trust Christ. Had Judas just waited a couple of days and Jesus came back to life, do you not think Judas would have believed? Well, I think he would have, but he didn't. So it really doesn't matter. So when people are harsh on Judas, they didn't have a chance. Hey, he always had a choice. Peter rejected Jesus three times. He went and broke down and cried. He went and hid himself. And then three days later, he went to an empty tomb and he saw. I mean, so you got you to have, I say this all the time, you got to have the whole story to understand it. And the whole story was Judas could have repented. And had he not killed himself, 
but just waited a few more days? Or had he even just any remorse that went to repentance, but it was remorse it's where it stopped. It never went from remorse to repentance. So when you ask people, do you feel bad for your sins? That's not going to cut it. At times, Pharaoh felt bad. Still hard as heart. So that's a good question. What else? Anyone? At all. So, all I can tell you is we're through.